Welcome to the second season of After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I am Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. With these interviews, I'm seeking to learn from cultural creatives about how following their passions has molded their lives and careers, what choices they've made, where it's led them, and how they created the lives of their dreams. I try to create a space where they feel that they can openly discuss the ups, downs, and zigzags of life, as well as the total magic and inspiration that comes from doing what you love to do. When I was in London in May, I sat down with Barbara Daly, a legendary makeup artist whose work I have long admired. As we talk about in the interview, Barbara grew up in Leeds, enamored with Hollywood movie makeup. After art school, she went on to a BBC makeup and hair training course, where she learned how to do every possible type of makeup needed for television. Her curiosity and constant experimentation led her to start working on editorial and advertising photo shoots at a time when makeup was usually either done by the models or someone sent by the, from the makeup company. Working with photographers like Barry Ladigan and Clive Aerosmith, Barbara became known as one of the first generation of name makeup artists. On our website, I've put together a slideshow of her editorial images, so you can see just how remarkable her work was. In 1970, her friend, the costume designer, Milena Cononero, introduced Barbara to Stanley Kubrick. Though only 21, Barbara was hired to create the makeup for Clockwork Orange, which included the droogs unsettling and now iconic eyelashes. She then worked with Kubrick on Barry Lyndon, if you haven't seen either of these films, watch them tonight and you will understand just how vitally important Barbara's makeup is to the final vision. Throughout this period, Barbara continued to do makeup for magazines, working for such legendary photographers as Helmut Newton and Norman Parkinson. And she also opened her own school, the Barbara Daly Makeup and Beauty Therapy School in London. Introduced by an editor from Vogue, Barbara did Princess Diana's makeup for her wedding in 1981. Watched by 750 million people worldwide, Diana's soft and romantic beauty look made Daly a household name. Long having wanted to launch her own makeup line, in the mid-1980s, Barbara launched a makeup brand with a body shop called Colorings. She later launched her own line, Barbara Daly Makeup, for the British supermarket chain Tesco. Now retired from the business, Barbara and her husband split their time between the country and London, where she takes art classes. It was so wonderful to chat with Barbara and hear her memories, both as a creative and as a businesswoman. Barbara allowed her interest in makeup to take her into many different areas and down diverse paths, yet throughout she stayed engaged and passionate. She was a total joy to chat with, full of stories and advice. I think you'll find her just as inspiring as I did. Enjoy. All those old movies, I love old movies. I mean, if there's ever anything up that I really want to watch, I just will really make a point. Because they're just fab, especially if they're black and white. Mm-hmm. But so many of those old films are just so extraordinary. I think I read somewhere that you got into makeup because of movies, like I watching did. movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, always been fascinated by film. Mm-hmm. That's what, yeah. Just when what, I was like, about ten or eleven. What were the Saturday, ones? Saturday afternoon cinema, and just watching <clears throat> all these changing faces on the screen. Do you remember what movies and what movie stars were captivated you and made you? I think at that young age, everything was interesting. You know how when you're really young and you like film, mm-hmm. whatever you go and see, I mean, I don't even know if it was what I would regard as rubbish now, and it's just fascinating then. So I think really anything, um, except maybe I wasn't very interested in Westerns. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a, a girl thing, yeah, right? No, no, it's not. <laughs> so they weren't particularly interested, although um, 
I guess I really loved Doris Day because she used to do, you know, Calamity Jane and all that. Then I liked the clothes. Yeah. So, but no, otherwise I'd, I sort of pretty much would watch anything. And where did you grow up? Where were you born? Yorkshire. Yorkshire? Yeah, in the north of England. And so, of course, uh, Saturday, or Saturday afternoon movies for us as kids was, you know, it's quite a big thing. You know, no mobile phones and internet in those days. So we ha- you had to go out mm-hmm. to see all that sort of stuff, which we did. And I loved it. Were you, were you an, an artist? Were you interested in the arts? I would say when I was, a, you know, a small child, mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in the arts per se because I probably didn't really understand what, what they were. Yeah. But I was always interested in drawing and I was interested in painting and my father was quite artistic. He, he actually could draw and paint quite well. Um, so we were always encouraged, you know, to do that when we were kids. I mean, we were always just drawing or mm-hmm. painting or something, you know, modelling with clay or plasticine yeah. or, you know, whatever it was. So I didn't know about the arts, but doing artistic things or creative things was, yes, I mean, it always happened in our family. What, was your, what did your parents do? What did your father do? Interestingly enough, he ran, um, well, it, I mean, they would all be called vin- vintage clothes now, but he had vintage clothes stores. Oh, really? And the market as well, mm-hmm. selling... I had the best dressing-up box, which I did not realise when I was 10. <laughs> it was just stuff that we had in a big box in the bedroom. But when I think back now, what was in that box? I'd probably give my eye teeth for it. The little embroidered bags and the sequined capes and... <sighs> You know, wow. pan velvet, and but we just used to dress up in it. It was it was the dressing up box mm-hmm. and stuff that my father couldn't sell. He didn't give to me, and we kids had amazing costume jewelry, and it was we didn't know it was just sort of sp- sparkling tap. <laughs> and of course, it probably wasn't tap, but it wasn't selling, so mm-hmm. it ended up in the dressing up box. <laughs> I wish oh, wow. the scarves, and I mean, we had all sorts of stuff because it was free. My mm-hmm. father just gave it to us. I wonder how much that impacted you, like, later, you know? A lot, I would think, because later when I started to work and do um, photo shoots and we'd occasionally do vintage-inspired things, I would remember some of the things I'd seen as a child. And then I began to realise how amazing Mm -hmm. they were, especially, you know, they're very heavily embroidered. I didn't know what hand embroidery was, it was just stitching, you know. I began to understand the quality of some of the stuff I probably had in that dressing up box that became meaningful, meaningful to me later because I knew what it had taken to make it. I didn't know yeah. when I was a kid. So, yeah, it was, it was an interesting journey as I realised what I'd probably torn into rags and thrown <laughs> away. I mean, I think that that was probably quite a bit of that, you know, and I... Oh, yeah, everybody does that, doesn't they? Yeah, my mother definitely gave me her, her like, original Barbie doll and some clothes of her mother's and things, and you're like... Got any of it now? What? Have you got any of it now? I do have some, but not the stuff that I was given as a ch- when I was really no. little. Like, some of the things, luckily, she were in a box that she didn't know where it was for a while. Yeah. So now I've got them. Um, but the things that I was handed to play with as a child, yeah, got destroyed. So, you know. But you know, it, it's funny because <clears throat> clearly 
although we're from different generations, our parents also didn't understand the potential mm-hmm. value of any of those things. They were, you never do when it's your moment and your time. Then it becomes something antique, vintage, or desirable, you know, 25 years later. But at the time, even your parents don't. Yeah. That's why they give you this stuff that, you know, otherwise we'd all, I suppose we'd all be up to the ceiling with collectibles. <laughs> it only becomes a collectible later, right? So did you go to university? Or what I went to Leeds Art School. You know, by the time I was 11, I knew that I probably wanted to, to be a makeup artist like the people I'd read on the credits in the films. Mm. I thought, that's fantastic. Who are they? What do they do? How do they do it? And um, I remember sort of talking to my parents about it. They hadn't got a clue. What, I, who would know, you know? So I had that stuck in my mind, and then I thought, um, well, I wanted to do something creative. So anyway, I went to art school to do, um, I actually did graphic design, mm-hmm. as it happens. I didn't do anything like fashion, because I don't think I had anything like a fashion course. So I did graphic design, I didn't do fine arts, because I just simply wasn't good enough you know, to do that then. <laughs> And uh, but I I never let the whole idea go of what I really wanted to do, which was to work in film. So that was always in, in the background yeah. all of the time. And um, I must have been about thirteen. I started to write letters. Um, <laughs> I think about it, and that's quite funny. You know, when you're a kid, you've got no idea. Because you, you just don't think someone's not going to... So you take it as it comes and nobody stops you. And So I was writing letters to people whose names I'd read on films who did the job I thought I'd like to do, which were all the big Hollywood makeup artists mm-hmm. of the 50s, 60s and whatever. And um, telling them what I wanted to do. So they obviously got a letter from this 12-year-old or however old I was. And do you know, I can remember, they, they all wrote back to me. That's amazing. I know. Oh, from, from, from America? Yes, yes, wow. which was like weeks and weeks later I'd get these, and they were very sweet, and they wrote back and said, yes, you can, and these are all the things you've got to do, and you have to have training, and you have to have art training, and then you've got to learn how to do sculpting, and it's good if you do this, that, and the other. So, of course, I went to art school, because, wow. you know... It was a, that, I, I mean, that's quite amazing that they wrote back to you and not everybody but I must have written probably a dozen letters I can't remember any of the names now but I mean there were guys they were all men interestingly enough okay. but they did actually nearly all get back to me which I thought was great mm-hmm. I didn't presume they wouldn't I just yeah, thought they would so yeah. they did so good for them and um so then anyway when I was um an art student I thought well what I better do because they've all told me I've got to get properly trained so I started to write to um the BBC mm. you know moving a bit yeah. closer to home here <laughs> since clearly nobody was going to pay for me to go to California and go to Hollywood <laughs> and be trained and gradually the penny dropped <laughs> were you doing your own like makeup and makeup on friends and everything yeah yeah like, anybody who would mm-hmm. um on me, probably first and foremost, because it was available. Yeah. And then on friends and aunts and my mother, anybody who'd sit still long enough for me to... God help them, God only knows what I did. But, I, you know, I learned things, playing, mm-hmm. really. And um, 
So then eventually I went to, I, I did go to the BBC in that on back in the day when they had training courses. Okay. I went from art school to work as a photographer's assistant. And then I went to work for the BBC in a training course. I don't even know if they do that anymore now, but they, they did then. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... I've not heard of it, but I would. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it still exists, but it used to be a two-year, two-year thing. To to then you know to learn everything about being working on the television. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, did the, in that training course, did you t- learn everything, or just about make? Were you specifically about makeup? Yeah, yeah. Makeup. Of course, you have to work closely with. Um, I mean, it was. I was still quite young because they didn't want to take. They weren't at that point taking people under I think about sort of twenty three or twenty four or something like that and I was just leaving art school early and I was only about I don't know, I must have been nineteen or something. But anyway, I got myself in somehow. And they teach you everything, including, you know, you do wig making. Mm. Not to expert level. Yeah. But so that you can handle wigs period makeup scars and um you know fake blood and all I loved all that I mean, it was great you know bones sticking up and so <laughs> so you actually go everything from sort of putting powder on the newscaster to doing full-scale oh, war wow. wounds and you do you, you did kind of everything really that's um, yeah that's quite amazing I, I'm pretty sure they don't do anything like that anymore but that no yeah. Well, you never knew, you see, what you were going to be called on. You could be working on, um, I don't know, some pop show for a week. Mm-hmm. And then you might get called to work and be given two weeks on a big period drama. So were you like war scenes. contracted to the BBC and then you yeah. know, did this thing yeah, on well, whatever they wanted? I was employed by the BBC. I worked at television centre, which is now all apartments. Oh, wow. I went there for dinner the other night. Um, it was amazing. It was a real. I don't think I'd walked in anywhere near that building for sort of forty years. Of course, it's a flat block now down in Shepherd's Bush, White City. So I worked there for a few years, mm-hmm. and then at that point, I read. I, I I still wanted to go into film, 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 not television yeah. film. I was having a good time and learning a lot, and you know, doing long hours and working. But I, film was where I'd set my sights a long time before as you know so I was trying to get uh, jobs on my days off which absolutely were not meant to do at all but you know you do what you got to do mm-hmm. and uh, you also had to have be a member of the union at that point the film union which is very very difficult because you couldn't get a membership if you hadn't got a job <laughs> you couldn't get a job if you hadn't got the membership so <laughs> anyway Somehow it happened. And um, so I started to get little bits of work, working as the assistant's assistant's assistant in the odd film from day to day, you know, perhaps working on a day off and all. I mean, really crummy jobs, you know, like blocking up someone's feet for, you know, that, that. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was there. I was kind of in and I was meeting people. And so I decided that I, I probably would have to leave the BBC if I was going to try and pursue this other end and um, so I, that's all I did I sort of left and thought well that's it I'll be able to 
definitely feed myself um, and then promptly just didn't get any work at all so <laughs> it was a time when the film business went into a decline so I was no job and no jobs coming which is basically what prompted me to go think well I've got somehow to earn some money mm-hmm. and I'm laughing now but it was, it was a bit desperate at the time so I thought well I'll, I'll try and get some work doing makeup for photographers. I mean, I, again, I had about as much idea about that as I had that I would get a job working in Hollywood and somebody had <laughs> no idea at all, no idea. Didn't even know if people did it, but I mm-hmm. thought, well, I had been at art school with a couple of people who graduated and gone to work in um, advertising in London. Mm-hmm. And I was obviously in London at that point. So I said to them, do you ever have anybody who does makeup for your cosmetic shoots for like, um, if you're doing a lipstick ad or something? And they said, well, no, not really, but, you know, because they send somebody along from the company, cosmetic yeah. company. But, you know, we maybe do some tests with you and everything. That, that's really how I started uh-huh. doing it. Around when was that? Oh, it yeah. must have been very late 60s, early 70s. Yes. And so... I sort of built up a little portfolio. And when I say little, I mean, I'm really sort of physically talking about you know, <laughs> a, little, a little tiny little book thing with a few photographs in. I started to go around and see the magazines because I thought, this is good. The studio work is good. You know, if I could get some more than one job a week, mm-hmm. it would be quite good. So I started to go around the magazines. I mean, I still had my art school Get, you know, paint stained jeans and a duffel coat that kind. We didn't have any money, and uh, I can remember going in to see various. They said to me, "What is it you do?" And I said, "Well, what I want to do is I want to do makeup for photographs for editorial. I think it was called editorial. I was just mm-hmm. pictures, you know, and ads and things like that. And I'm sure I said a bit more than that, but and they said." why should we pay you for that? Because we get people from the cosmetic houses for nothing, or the girls do themselves, which, of course, they did. Yeah. You know, everybody just sort of did themselves. But then I was given a couple of breaks. I got a bit of luck then because I met a photographer called Barry Latigan, who's Mm -hmm. a wonderful, wonderful beauty photographer. And he employed me to do a couple of shoots, and they were editorials for Vogue magazine. Mm -hmm. I think my first thing was a an ad for him for a a company called Yardley to do the makeup for an advertising thing. It was the first thing I ever did, I think. And then he employed me to do some editorial for Vogue magazine and Grace Coddington was the uh, editor. Mm -hmm. She was very much a mentor to me. She was great, really amazing. And they started to book me to do photo shoots. It, It sort of escalated from there and then other photographers would book me, you know, would be Bailey or or Clive Arrowsmith or and then gradually I began I mean it took a long time I mean I'm talking years here and then I started to get booked abroad but my first job was with not English photographers was <clears throat> with Helmut Newton which was an advertising job and I remember it to this day because I was t- absolutely totally terrified of him he's <laughs> you know we actually became great friends and I, I loved him and I worked with him all of my working life. He was, he was great. He, he didn't speak to me the whole of the first day and we 
just seeing lots and lots of girls and he came in to me on the second day and the client was there as well and he said to me not to bother with all the other girls just bother with this one over here because she's the only one who I'm going to be interested in in the photograph <laughs> and he wasn't kidding the others were all about so big you know tiny at the back of the shot and the girl he really liked took up the whole <laughs> but I had to do them all because the client was there and they were paying me to do everybody's so that was it really then then the career built slowly from there I guess they could see that you were offering something that they hadn't been able to get I think so although I didn't think about it at the time because I'm often asked if you planned this and planned that and did you do this and did you do that and I honestly don't think for me and I think for a lot of people you can't plan every move Mm -hmm. and you can't plan what might happen I think you have to just go forward with something you're passionately interested in and take a chance and take a flyer and be prepared to fail yeah a lot of the time and not get work and not have any money and not worry about it and just manage as best you can if you don't go out you don't, I mean you don't go out and I take th- it as it comes and just keep at it and and hope that you do get lucky so I don't think you can plan every move in life I think you've got to just work really hard develop yourself and then to some extent you've got to kind of wing it because breaks come your way that are disastrous you think they're breaks but Mm -hmm. actually they're terrible and you you get stuck in a corner with jobs you really don't want to do but you have to do because you have to earn the money oh then you get a break and it's something utterly wonderful and leads you to something else and I don't think you can think about it as a plan I can look at a British Vogue from that era and be like, oh, this is totally Barbara's makeup. Mm. Like, I can recognize it now. Did you feel like you had a style in particular or were you just experimenting? I think I, I, think I had. I think I had a specific way of working. When I started out, there weren't very many people doing a makeup at all. So I was aware of anybody else who was doing it during that period and there were some wonderful people like there's a, a guy called Gilles who worked for Max Factor who mm-hmm. did you know very decorative things and another person called Pablo who worked for Elizabeth Arden but there weren't a lot of people around doing makeup and certainly um, fashion shows you know basically catwalk everybody d- did themselves mm-hmm. I mean the first time I ever did a catwalk show I did every single girl myself because there was nobody else occasionally I'd get some makeup friend to come along and mm-hmm. help out so it was really a very very different picture so I suppose I developed my own style because there wasn't anybody much I was comparing myself to so you were just you kind of worked in a bit of a vacuum I think I learned a lot from the models watching the models doing what they did to themselves and then refining it turning it into something else that I was interested in and a lot from all the photographers and people you know people like Grace and their ideas so it's a collaborative cumulative learning process to develop your own style I think you have your own way of working but other people feed you Mm -hmm. with their ideas and they say well could you do it like this because I think and so you have a go so I like that collaboration and were those all of your favourite people to work with? I mean, I I love Barry and Clive and all of their photos. I think I had a very, very lucky time during the 20 years that I was really full on because 
I worked with all these amazing people mm-hmm. who were all so very different. You know, people like Sarah Moon, mm-hmm. and I worked with Richard Abbott in America, and I worked with all the good photographers here and in Paris, and all the great Italian photographers, you know, because I worked a lot for Italian Vogue. I think everybody, everybody brought something different to the photographs. Uh, but by the same token, I think as a makeup artist, it probably helped me develop because they all wanted me to do something different for them, which was pertinent to their style and their vision of fashion, their vision of women, their lighting, their way of working. I mean, for instance, the makeup I would do for, say, Hans Feuer or Norman Parkinson wouldn't be the same. I could even have the same girl because I've very often worked, you know, with the same models. But if I had somebody amazing like Suzanne Moncur on a Sarah Moon shoot, what I did on her would be totally, totally different if I had that same girl and I was working with, say, Helmut. Mm -hmm. So I was getting a lot from them because I had to develop my style to be also their style, knowing what they wanted and how they lit and how they liked girls to look, whether they nearly always wanted red lipstick or none ever didn't like the look, always wanted it natural. You know, so you widen your offering according, you know, you don't just go in and do your thing because yeah. it's not about you. It's about them, about what they want to achieve, how the editor wants the page to look, because people like Grace, for instance, would always have a very, very strong vision. The model, the image, where it'll go on the page and how, how she would style it and see the whole thing looking. It's a huge kind of collaboration which, you know, develops. You don't just do your thing. And, of course, for me, most of all, however elaborate, you know, if I was working, for instance, with Italian folk doing the couture, and we would do some amazingly uh, decorative, creative stuff. But I never wanted it to be, you know, I always felt if the girl didn't feel beautiful, however strange the makeup, you never got a good picture. Mm. So you could never, I never would ever force something on somebody where I could see them looking in the mirror and thinking, I don't think I look good like this. However odd. Yeah, because they can't bring it out No, and it shows in the Mm -hmm. picture. If If the model's not happy and can't relate to what you've done, the hair, the makeup, the style, I don't think any good photographer can get a good picture because she's not, can't come forward, you know. So you've got to take all that into consideration as well. Mm-hmm. And once you sort of gotten that your fashion career going, was that immediately more fulfilling than the BBC and television and everything? It was so different and it escalated. I really wasn't, I mean, I was totally not doing anything like television programmes, obviously, because I wasn't being asked to. <clears throat> and also it wasn't my job anymore. The film side, I started to do a lot of commercials, mm. you know, which were three-day films, two-day films, four-day films. And they linked in very well to um, what I was doing in photography because I think the two of us affected each other hugely, you know, which then led on to the you know, music videos and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think your own world spreads out because other things come in, you know, you're doing photographs and then somebody asks you to do a music video or somebody asks you to do a commercial and the person who's done a commercial is going to do a short film. So, you know, 
things link into one another, which is great because you actually end up sort of doing everything. Mm-hmm. And how different are they? The, ma- the makeup for a still photograph versus like the commercial one? Depends on who's shooting what and how. What you can do for a still, because it is still, yeah. is uh, different to what you would be doing for a piece of film where there's movement and the lighting is very different. So I've always been very, very interested in, in lighting itself because it can completely make or break a picture. It, it's really what it's all about. And a piece of film, mm-hmm. you know. If it's not lit appropriately for the story, whatever that story is, no matter what you do with the styling or the makeup or the hair, if it's not lit properly, it's dead. You know, you can't do it. You don't get the story ever. So I've always been really interested in how something is, you know, how it's lit and and adjusting what I do according Mm -hmm. to what the director or the photographer wants, according to how they're lighting it. I worked on a film years ago with a wonderful Swedish um, director of photography and we were doing some tests. I can't remember where we were, Pinewood or Shepparton or something, it doesn't matter, but anyway. And um, the makeup room was lit so differently to what he was trying to get on the set. And I I felt I was really failing. I, I couldn't get it right. And on the second day, I realised what it was. What I was sending out, which looked fine in the makeup room, it was what we discussed, went out onto the set and looked totally... Because he was a genius and he lit it in such a different way. It didn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. So I went and said to him, look, I'm, and this is what's happening. And he said, I, uh, yes, he said, I understand. He came into the makeup room and said, I totally understand. He said, when you come in tomorrow morning, I'll have all that fixed. And he built a makeup station to the side of the set with was much brighter than the lighting he was using, but it was completely correct mm-hmm. for what he wanted me to do to give him what he wanted. I mean, it was incredible lighting, the power of it, you see. It's very true because just even looking around, you know, the color of daylight is so different than the color of incandescent versus like tungsten or... Got to get the light now right. LEDs and everything, you know, which is horrific, isn't it? It makes everyone look horrible or blindingly <laughs> horrible. Mm-hmm. So I actually this morning went to the Kubrick exhibition, and I, was I like, haven't seen it yet. It's wonderful, yeah. but I was wondering how you connected with him, how you got, how you started working with him. I've got a great uh, friend who's a costume designer called Milena Cananero. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know her. She's one of my oldest, closest friends. She. <laughs> called me one day and she said because she had done a lot of films mm-hmm. with um, Stanley Kubrick you know I think she'd done I can't remember what she'd done before I know she'd done everything and they were very close friends and, and worked together great collaboration and she said look could you come and meet him because we're doing this film called Clockwork Orange and it's very futuristic and I'm doing all the costumes for it and I would really I think I've told Stanley about you and the kind of things that you do and your imagination and could you come and meet him? So oh, I'd, I'd love to do that. So I went to meet him and he said in his inimitable Stanley way, well, could I come up and do some tests at St Albans where he was? So I said, 
I could, yes, of course. And he was an amazing person to collaborate with. The creative process to him was really all, you know. I mean, everything was important to him. But we had the great luxury of, he'd just say, well, experiment, you know. You'd sit down and he'd get the actors in and he'd tell you about what he wanted, tell you about the scene, think about the ideas and say, you know, what kind of ideas have you got for that? And I'd say, well, what about this, that and the other? And he'd say, I could just do it. So then do it and then I'll come and Polaroid it and we'll put, put it on film. So we'd just work like that, you know. That's how we got to the eyelashes because we were talking about that one day and I said, he said to me, we were talking about false eyelashes and he said to me, I can't quite remember the whole thing, it was so long ago now. I said, you know, we should put this, you know, maybe this guy's character that he was playing is probably just the kind of person who might sort of do this and put these lashes on. And he said, well, just, just do it, let's have a look at it. And I did it and he came and took a Polaroid and said, okay, that's it, we've absolutely got it. And um, I remember him saying to me afterwards, so what do women do when they take their lashes off? And I said, well, they stick them on the mirror, <laughs> you know, take them off. And he said, great. He was kind of always onto it. You know, he knew immediately if an idea was going to work for him. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of tests and every makeup that we did, we, we, we tried. Mm-hmm. And, for, you know, all those colour blocks on the faces and things that... Because that was different because it was... the. It was kind of like wall paint for boys, but we wanted to make a, a statement yeah. of it, but not so much that it took over. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really research for that because it wasn't that kind of Yeah, it was story. more futuristic. You're sort futuristic. of creating the idea. And, I, and, you know, Milena and I would discuss at length what the faces were going to look like, and it was different. Barry Lyndon was different, and that was a lot of research. Did you enjoy doing that kind of? Oh, I loved it. I loved it and that was really interesting because I had to look at it two different ways when I understood what the film was about. For that period you could have been very realistic and Hogarthian Mm -hmm. or you really had to look at beauty of the period as personified by Gainsborough Mm -hmm. painting and the one paintings and the one. Well Milena was going on that route and I spoke to Stanley and I said well look if you go the other realistic face route which I didn't think for a minute was going to be but you never know it's going to be a lot of people with very deep pot marks and no teeth and all these <laughs> absolutely not no no and so we really I, I used painting as my research tool there and just looked at all of the period paintings of of the time with Milena actually we would be trawling around galleries together and looking at books and and um and Leonard who was doing amazing hair those beautiful mm, beautiful which were absolutely incredible so we would be going around all doing sim- very similar research because when you're doing something well again it's the collaboration thing you see early on like clockwork orange i couldn't have done what i did without relating very directly to the set designs looking at them and, and what milena was doing with the clothes and again for barry linden to know how she was going to, you know, what kind of colours she was using, how it was going to look, and Leonard in the hair. So you don't just do the face. It had to work with the hair. It had to work with the amazing dresses and the whole thing. It was an entity. And it wasn't actually, you know, it wasn't 
very realistic if you think about it. I mean, we had Marisa with a kind of peach and ochre yellow eyeshadow on because I was using the paintings and how Gainsborough painted. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was a look in a film, which is not a lot to do with reality, really, but it was our reality. Yeah, you know? and I mean, you're creating a world that's... Totally. I mean, it, I mean that movie is just one of the most beautiful ones I've ever seen. Well, it was, again, lighting, you see. Yeah. Because you know he... Well, you know, because you're the researcher, but, I mean, he really did light all of it with candles. Which is incredible. Yeah. I remember we were in a meeting one night um, when he was... We were, t- we were talk- he was talking about the lighting and he was he you know he built the, well you know that those great big lenses to get as much light mm-hmm. in as possible which they made all these big lenses and he was saying oh we've got to protect them at night so I think it was Leonard said shower caps <laughs> of course we, they worked <laughs> you know the big puffy shower caps with bouffant hair <laughs> over the lenses but he was particularly amazing to work with Stanley Kubrick I have to say. Because if you had a creative idea in your head, it, it, he'd get it out of you. You know, he it was always an open... He was absolutely open to anything. He was amazing, actually. He would never say, no, can't possibly do that. He'd only say that if it wasn't working, but if he thought you had something to give, he was always open to experimentation. And he'd give you the time, which a lot of people don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. So for me, he was great. And I, I loved him to bits, actually. And great guy. You, I guess, with the, and with those movies, you'd really crossed over into doing what you dreamed of doing as a child. I know, I was there, wasn't I? <laughs> Actually working, doing film. Yeah, but at that time, it was tricky because on a totally personal level, I was trying to do both. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to work on film at the same time as also doing my uh, photography world so I was really uh, I was probably burning the candle at both ends a bit too much but then I was much happier than I am now so I could do it but I can't remember sleeping for about five years you weren't it wasn't like you during the shooting you went off and did the shooting for a couple months and then or you were doing both running back and forth kind of I'm afraid I was doing both yeah that's very hard (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it was but you know I liked it Mm-hmm. I loved it. I didn't mind the hours. I think you have to have a lot of stamina to work in the film business. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, people forget the really long hours. I mean, you're called at six thirty or seven thirty or eight thirty, but then you've got to get wherever you're going. So you've got to get up at five, and then you don't wrap till eleven. You get home, you have an hour to set up, get ready. Then you've about four hours sleep, then you've got to get up. So. All sounds glamour, doesn't it? You know, but actually, it was. I mean, I loved it. Didn't, didn't everybody was doing the same thing? We all knew what we were in for. Mm-hmm. But well, mind you, having said that, photo shoots can be the same. Yeah, you know, if yeah. you're working with somebody who wants the light at six fifteen on a location. I think you know, people outside of, you know, the fashion and film worlds often think they're very glamorous. But having been on the sets for a long time. Yeah. Well, they are. They can you know? be. They are. It is a hugely glamorous world in in a lot of ways because it's this magical, strangely created artificialness. Um, and of course, because it's so visual, 
it isn't like just sitting there and um I suppose you know, I mean people wouldn't see they perhaps don't see a novelist who works just as hard just as creatively just as long hours or a writer like you are you know they don't see that as particularly glamorous mm-hmm. in the same way and it's because we're so exposed to this because it's such a visual a very very visual thing yeah. um so there is a, a in quotes a glamour to that you know because we can, because we all relate uh to the end result we don't see the bit yeah at the beginning and the end and in the middle and all of that so i, I do understand why totally why people think it's it's glamour because they only see the glamour bit mm-hmm yeah it- I've just, you know, been on sets many times where you're just like, oh my God, this is so long. And then it it starts to lose its glamour for you, you know. I can remember being on those sets at night when it's so cold, you don't know what to do with yourself. You know, you, you end up sort of standing on the heaters and then cracking the bottom of your boots. And yeah, there's that side. It's, it's, it's great, but it, it, that's what it is, you know. So you just did the two films with him? Okay. I helped out with uh, with others that he wanted to um like when he did um full metal jacket mm-hmm. he was somebody else did that but I, he he rang me up one day and he was talking to me about the film and he wanted just some information on how to get certain things we used to just talk about stuff you know that was possible to do even if i I wasn't doing it I worked on a film that was never made, set in um, World War, before, just before or after, before or during World War Two, that we did a lot of tests for, but he never made he never made the film, and then he made Eyes Wide Wide Shut, which mm. I I couldn't do. I was very committed by then. Yeah. I was working on one of the makeup brands that I did, so that was sad. I didn't didn't do any more with him after that. Mm. Well, I mean, if. If it was just because you were so, so busy, that's still, you know, it's great. Yeah. But you were, your career was so, you know, you basically created a career for yourself. No one was hiring makeup artists for editorials, and then you created no. the world. Yeah, I'd, I only looked at it like that many, many years later. And in fact, I think it was in an interview a long time ago that somebody said exactly what you've just said they just pointed it out it hadn't sort of occurred to me till that time because going back to what we spoke of earlier I wasn't thinking of creating anything I just kind of wanted to do it to earn a living Mm -hmm. and I was really interested and that was what I felt I was passionate about doing and I know it created now looking back yes it created an industry if you like but um I didn't think about that at the time it was just a job well that makes it sound ordinary but it was you know a job that I wanted to do so yeah what do you think about that the world of makeup artists now like there's everyone like so many people want to be a makeup artist and they're making YouTube videos and it's it's a very different than when you started I think it's amazing (laughs) you know um there's just so much stuff out there it's rather incredible that it has gained such momentum and so much interest and there are a lot of people really skilled out there very creative really artistic i mean i like the fact that it's an outlet for this terrific creativity perhaps for people like me that wanted to paint and weren't going to be great painters 
which by the way now of course I'm back at art school you know oh, really? <laughs> this is what I'm doing now I'm back at life drawing and painting oh, I've done the full circle now trying to learn to draw <laughs> properly and painting but I love the fact it, it's this wonderful creative outlet for so many people and not female orientated anymore mm-hmm. it's male and female and it's not just male orientated because going back to where we started out talking all those guys in Hollywood were entirely they were all guys yeah. and there were no women involved in it um, then there were the few guys when I first started out who worked for the houses men again who were great and there were lots of great male makeup artists in my era as well but great girls as well really wonderful you know people like Phyllis Cohen and all those mm-hmm. wonderful girls so I like the fact anybody can do it doesn't matter if you're a creative guy or a creative girl it's open to everybody now whoever you are and I, I think that's a really good thing and does it still excite you in the same way that it always did oh yeah, yeah absolutely I still look at it I still look at magazines I love to see film I'll watch a little bit of this that and the other person on YouTube and everything. yeah I mean I spent my whole life doing it I mean I still I don't um I don't do it anymore, but it's still something I'm interested mm-hmm. in. It's but you know, passion. Because I got waylaid, of course. Not waylaid, that's really the wrong thing to say. But, of course, d- during that process, I did the makeup brands that I worked on. So I moved into another, you know, another area entirely then. Yeah, I was going to ask you, yeah. the first one you did was colourings, right? Or yeah, with the body shop. With the body yeah. shop. Who didn't have a colour cosmetic branch. And then I met Anita and Anita asked me if um, I'd like to do... She said, we need to do some colour cosmetics for... They weren't as big as they became, Body mm-hmm. Shop they had, but they had, you know, franchises and shops all over the place. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever... I didn't know anything about cosmetic chemistry, although I had always made colour myself because a lot of what I wanted to use to use in film and photography didn't exist. It wasn't... the colour wasn't very sophisticated you either had stage makeup which I did use and tampered with or you would have to make your own colour I mean I used to use Caran d'Ache you know the crayons Mm -hmm. on people's faces mixed with foundation to get colour because you couldn't buy it you know eyeshadow was like brown or green or blue or you know you didn't have what you have now so I was used to mixing colour I had always done that for everything from foundation, just from whatever I could make it from. Probably wouldn't get through health and safety now, but that was what we did. And uh, But I didn't know anything about the chemical side. That's when I started to work with cosmetic chemists who are extraordinary. And finding out what you could do with ingredients and how you can use them, how they perform, which is very different, you know, when you when you're making a product happen because as a makeup artist you're used to the end result yeah but to make the end result happen you have to go back quite a few steps with all of the ingredients you can have an idea of what you would like the end result to be but it's a you know it's a huge path way and you need good chemists to get you to the end 
yeah, and it's and very a, interesting. And as a makeup artist, you really only you look you want it to look good for that amount of time it needs to look good. Whereas, usually, if something's gonna go to market, we want it to have like to last for longer than a picture. You know, right? exactly. And so the formulation has to. Yeah, you've you've got to work on it mm. a and, lot actually, because by and and you have. When you're creating color cosmetics, of course, there are very, very strict rules. They're probably the strictest health and health and safety rules you apart from food. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as you know, in America it's run by the FDA Food and Drug yeah. Administration. So cosmetics and food are very, very highly uh supervised and you have to really work within those parameters. You can't just stick any I mean I used to have the most incredible eye pencil, which was the most beautiful bright green you've ever seen in the whole world, made by a company called Galaxine, who don't exist anymore. And I have half of it still, and it can never be made again because the green colour was arsenic. Oh, wow. Twiggy has the other half. I broke it in half and gave it to her. <laughs> These are the only two bits. If she's got any left, I don't know. But I've kept my little, little end. It's about that big now. Because you, you can never... I tried to recreate it but you could never get anything quite as bright because, of course, arsenic was banned 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, Galaxy, is that the brand? Galaxine. Galaxine. It was some brand that was around. Oh, like yeah. Princess Galaxine. Yes, exactly. Okay. That was who it was. Um, it was a wonderful pencil. I'll never forget it. It really was the colour of an, a properly with an emerald with a light behind it. I mean, it was amazing. And I did try, but... Never. Well, I mean, I'm guessing working with the body shop, you had even stricter sort of rules to follow because they had such sort of ethical and sort of. We had at that um, time. I mean, we just had guidelines. Guidelines. You know, but actually, they pretty much apply through the whole of the industry. People forget it's quite, it's strongly regulated. Mm-hmm. You can't just do anything. Hence the arsenic story, because. These are things that people ingest. Lipstick, you know, it goes into your I mean, yeah. mouth, directly into your mouth. Products go onto your skin and into your eyes. So, it, yeah. But this is why you need good chemists, you see. And did and you I, enjoy that, the formulation I process? I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. Really, I, I learned so much. And I really loved working in the laboratory. I loved working in the labs and creating uh, formulas with the chemists and saying, you know, we're not saying, but asking if we could do this, that and the other and and then watching them try and achieve it because it's not really like mixing something up at home. Mm -hmm. You know, they've really got to get it right, especially if they're going to have to repeat it a million times over. So, yeah, it was, I mean, I spent 20 odd years doing that and it was quite fascinating and saw a lot of progress in the cosmetic industry actually so you did colorings and then what else did you do then i did my own brand which i did in partnership with tesco which i don't think exists anymore but um that was one and then i did a color range for a company called liz earl who basically a skincare brand they they wanted a color range putting together and then i stopped (laughs) three was enough Mm mm-hmm when you came up with the idea for a color, was it just what you what you felt like was missing from the market? Did you do market research, or was it just sort of like what was coming to you? Like, what inspired you? 
perhaps, you know, I think more than one kind of inspiration. Um, first of all, it's how you've, at that stage, it was how you felt about women and how they looked. And of course, colour cosmetics in terms of makeup, that you know, they're very momentary, they're very contemporary thing, they're very in that, that moment. Mm-hmm. You might be looking to do um, looks that are based, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s vibe about them but however the cosmetics you use in everything's in that moment it's going to be for that season that year or whatever so that's one of the guy the guides for it and the other one of course are the wonderful cosmetic chemists on their own who are constantly creating background formulas that you can you you can use you know the first time they started to be able to micronize mica which is a very the shiny stuff that goes very very finely so you could start to put it into foundations without it looking like somebody had rubbed a glitter ball on your face and you know that kind of thing so the guidance comes from all over the place or you'd see a presentation of products and I would very often think well they've made that for the skin but actually I'd say to the chemist do you think we could do use the basis of what I'm seeing here and turn it into an eye makeup or do you think what you've done for this eye makeup makeup is a concept we could actually utilize maybe turn it into a skin product or lips or you know whatever so there's inspiration coming from all over the place from the chemists Mm -hmm. from the people who do you know design and and stuff on the street and of course the natural world I'm always interested in what's going on outside you know from, Mm -hmm. from the point of view of color so you get a lot of inspiration if you just keep your eyes open. And then, you know, just maybe talking to people and you'd say, you know, very often, you know, people would say to me, I wish there was, you know, women always have a wish list about what they want about their, their makeup. Mm-hmm. I wish there was a product that did, did, you know, whatever it is. That's the only market research I ever did. I'd rather just to ask people what they like and what they're interested in. You know, how do they want to look? themselves yeah you know how do they want their skin to be how do they want their blusher to go on what can they deal with how do they like their lipstick you know what do they like mm-hmm. and that varies you know people change a lot change over time or change between different people but oh it definitely changes yeah. between different people because yeah. you can chat to a couple of women and they want the mascara to do this that and the other somebody else is much more interested in the lip liner or Mm -hmm. you know so of course people have different things they're hugely interested in or not interested in at all but that's you know that's very valuable actually because if you're creating a makeup line you can't just do what you want Want. it's not for you it's for a lot of people and age groups of course Mm -hmm. what was what was your what's your favorite part piece of makeup like lips, skin, eyes, is it, do you have a sort of... When I was creating cosmetics, I have to say, I always personally felt that you had to start with uh, the canvas. I always felt skin was very, very important. All the features are very important, but I'd always felt that creating the background, maybe it was my whole photographic and filmic thing you know if you get the background right which doesn't not mean a lot of makeup it just means trying to create as perfect a 
background as good a skin mm-hmm. as possible and I do think that um, a lot of women do want that you know they do find that's the place they want then they want to add their eyes or their lips or mm-hmm. you know whatever it is they're interested in. so for me I think the way the skin looks is always a bit is always a big thing which doesn't mean you know for me very often meant not perhaps not putting foundation on at all as a person who was selling it at the time but maybe you just only pl- applied it where you needed it yeah or just concealer over a ba- you know over moisturizer or something i don't think i'd never thought there was a set rule because it all depends on the skin underneath some people need more some people need less and it's not regular you know so yeah skin i think was always my focus although i loved eye makeup not being a big lipstick wearer, that was always kind of the last thing I ever got into doing. Although I, I, I like it a lot. But I love skin and eye makeup. Colour. Mm-hmm. The variation, you see. One way or another, lip, lips, you get the texture. Uh, but that invariably, although this is somebody who's painted other people's mouths blue and green and God knows what else, and I liked it in the picture. But... You don't sell a lot of, and most people do want some version of pink to red yeah. with all the browns and oranges in between. But eye makeup, for instance, you know, the world is your oyster. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I bet you anything, I bet you grey, brown, and black are still the biggest sellers. I think so. Yeah. I've been trying to, as, as a woman who has my wish list. Um, yeah, what's on your wish, wish list? I, I've been really wanting like a pretty pretty much like a lilac powdery shadow that has no sparkle in it and no one has makes well, it that should be really oh, no it's one, pissy i don't do it anymore no i've been i've, I've li- literally well, at least in new york gone everywhere and everything has a lot of sparkle if they have the lavender and often i think a lot of the brands are moving towards the eyeshadows are only in the big palettes with everything and i'm like i just want one oh, i don't want yeah. everything i just want the one I just want this one purple, <laughs> you know, this one... La- like... Just a very pale lavender. Mm-hmm. I keep buying ones that are still have a sparkle, but are at least not super sparkly, but I still haven't found the one. And it's like, I, I know what he has existed before because I feel like I've owned it before. And obviously in photographs Such from the 70s... I'm I could... not <laughs> in the business anymore. I would have made you one tomorrow. It's, um... You know you can just kill the sparkle with just a little sweep of powder, you know that. Okay, I'll try that. I... I don't actually have any powder. I'm not really a powder person. Like. Oh, I'm a big powder person. Can't live without powder. Got it. You've got to get yourself some. <laughs> so find your lavender that you like, mm-hmm. and a little thing of powder, like translucent powder. Yeah, just a light translucent powder, and just see if you like the color when you get the tester, because the powder will make it a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you if it's nearly there but you don't like the shine. Just try it on the back of your hand and then just sweep a bit of powder over it with a brush. The shine will go because the powder will kill the shine mm-hmm. immediately and Makes you'll probably sense. get exactly what you want. So I, I kind of feel like I have to ask about the most famous woman you did makeup on, Princess Diana. She's the most famous person in the world at yeah. any time, was she not? Yeah. And how did that come to be that you did the makeup for her wedding? Um, through, actually, that was through the uh, then beauty editor of Vogue, Felicity Clark, And she said to me, 
that um, that then Lady Diana Spencer, as she was at that time, obviously, wanted someone to help her out with the wedding day makeup, which is clearly going to be quite a big call. And would I like to come and meet her and perhaps do a test makeup mm -hmm. on her? <clears throat> so I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to do that. And so I went along and we did... I spoke to her because I, first and foremost, going back to what we spoke about earlier, I wanted to know what she wanted, you know, because brides have a very strong vision of how they want to look themselves. I mean, this was definitely her day, so I didn't want to go in and say, well, I think you should have a black eyeliner and do the thing. There's nothing, you know, I wanted to hear what she wanted. So we had a little chat, and then I did um, a test on her. I can, I just did half her face, which is something I very often do because I wanted them to see the differences and mm. what would happen. Because if you do the whole face, they kind of almost forget how they how they look, you know, and then they're not sure if it's right. And so I did half of her face, and clearly she 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 wanted that look that we discussed, and um, and she called me the next day and said, would you know would I do it? And I said. Would be really thrilled. Yes, of course, I'd love, love to do this, and um, and that's that's really how it came about. And was there? Did you like look at sketches of the dress? Did you see anything, or do you? Nobody just... saw the dress. No one. I saw a little bit of fabric. Uh -huh. you know, so you. So you just sort of had to assume that it would all go together. I just assumed it was a wedding dress. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, didn't know. It's, a, I it's did... a very particular yeah. wedding dress. Yeah, I did know. I mean, they they really did. Nobody knew, I don't think anybody but her saw, and she didn't tell me anything. But I did ask the Emmanuels if... Because the only thing I wanted to know, because I knew the reflective quality of pure white is very different on what it does to the skin and the face and everything. Didn't work with Norman Parkinson for a long time for nothing, did I? <laughs> <laughs> and Helmut. Um and so, and a white reflector board. Yeah, I was going to say, white, like, a, yeah. A white dress is just a big white reflector board, so you really would have to bear that in mind. And so they sent me a bit of fabric. So I knew it wasn't going to be white, white, because mm -hmm. it was kind of, it was lovely. It was just oysterish. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, not dark, but I mean, it, it was a tremendous colour to pick, that oysterish colour. <clears throat> and that was all I knew. I knew nothing else about it, but then nobody did except Diana, and she wasn't telling anybody. <laughs> I didn't ask, but I would have been not right. I just told her I knew it wasn't going to be Ted White, and that was the end of. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure even at the time you knew that it was like going to be one of the most talked about... Yes, I think everybody days. involved in it knew that it was going to be uh, a big deal worldwide, but I don't think anybody really realised and until the day just how big it was going to be. I think that, I can't even remember how many people tuned in. I think we all read about it later. It was like millions mm -hmm. and millions and millions and millions of people all over the world. You don't really, you know, it's that thing when you're in the middle of something you're involved in it, your whole focus is on the job you're doing on that day. And on that day, my entire focus was, I knew it was going to be a long, that really had to last from when we got her ready at you know, nine in the morning, right through 
because I knew I'd only have a couple of times to be able to get to her to do any repairs, which would be in St Paul's and then during the photography afterwards. So that was it. There, there, were, there weren't going to be any other occasions. I mean, you couldn't say, they can just stop for a minute while I put some <laughs> power, and that was not going to happen. So it had a huge amount of lighting everywhere, you know, not terrible or anything like that. I mean, not the kind of glaring lights that were going to ruin everything, but there was obviously more light because of the television cameras mm-hmm. and everything. So and we didn't know what the weather was going to be like, you know, rain, thank God it didn't. So it was, you know, artificial light to daylight to having to last and I wanted her to feel comfortable all of the day long. So that was a long day for her, really. Anyway, it, it did last. Yeah. I mean, in all of the pictures, she looks incredibly fresh, you know. Um, yeah. She was only 19. I know. And she really was quite lovely. But um, I, I didn't get. I, I only got. I got to her um, during the signing of the register ceremony for a bit of powder and a tiny bit of lipstick, and that was it. Until we did the pic, the photographs. But she was very good. She didn't put her hands on the face. <laughs> I said, "Don't touch your face." <laughs> she was great. Did you work with her again? Yeah, I worked with her for years actually. Yeah. After that, yeah, very often. Yeah, she was. She a friend and she was just a lovely 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 lady and did you do a lot of celebrity stuff over the years yeah over the years yeah a lot and I suppose I think because I mean nowadays if I was working it would be because people are doing um, so much gramming and yeah they're on the YouTube videos and blah 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 but of course during the 70s and 80s it was all in film or print Mm -hmm. so if you were an actress or a personality of any kind really you you were being filmed or photographed a lot so you were being asked to do photo shoots with and for whoever Mm -hmm. the with and for was and so yeah, of course I got a lot of bookings, not just models, but also, you know, people very well known in their time and in their day because that's how they got publicity. You know, if there was a film out and the major star, you know, if especially if it was a woman, wanted someone to do their makeup. So I was very lucky and you know, I got to meet and work with great people and beautiful women and beautiful guys <laughs> who also like like their makeup, you know. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to look nice. Yeah. Do you miss working in it? Oh, yes. Of course I do. Yeah, it's absolutely... um, It's kind of in my DNA. I mean, I did it all my life, Mm -hmm. really. So, of course I miss it. Whether or not I'd want to do it now, mm, I don't know. Uh, But, yeah, I miss it. Of course I do, you know. So I did it. That's what I did. So that's why you're painting and yeah, getting back to yeah, painting back and drawing. Feet. Got to have a, a creative outlet. I mean, there was a period of time um, during the 70s where I did a television show. Um, so I had that combination of, 
you know, doing the makeup and writing and presenting a TV show and being able to do makeup live on screen and all that kind of so thing. So what was the TV show? Fascinating. It was um it was it was called Daily Beauty, can you oh, believe okay. it? Yeah. But you see that was great because that was a time when I could combine everything from being able to present the stuff so I could do it the way I, the way I wanted to to actually having celebs being made up live on screen with no makeup on to getting makeup on to talking about product to just doing the whole and sometimes then being photographed so that was kind of a pretty good thing to do that i'd love to do that kind of thing now you know the whole one yeah really good fun. bring everything together yeah I may have to see if i can find some of that that sounds oh i've got some old tapes oh i'd love to see that some wonderful old tapes <laughs> made a couple of videos and stuff but the world if I were to do it now I mean I would have to um, think about an entirely different world because of course it's now so orientated to what you get on your mobile phone mm-hmm. or your iPad etc etc so you have to sort of think small but you know it's the way it's going and then I suppose it'll explode out to being big again but to do something like makeup I can see everything would have to be quite close up. So, yeah, if I were to do it now, I think I'd have to start thinking about it in a very different way, which, of course, is always exciting. Kate Moss said to me years ago, she, one day she said to me, oh, she said, I learned all my makeup from your books. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, well, I think you're pretty good at it. But yeah, said, so people don't... I think, you know, nobody's looking at makeup books anymore. Not really, because it's all on screen. Which I quite like. I like the f- because, you know, having done TV things and having done videos and having done books, there's no doubt about it. You know, the face moves. What you do, it's um, it is a mobile mm-hmm. thing. So actually, what you can show in stills is terrific, but what you can show, moving, I think it's, and a relate relatability, for me, it's the absolute ultimate you know the real thing going on and looking that way and this is what you do and blah 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 so I think there's probably quite a long way yet with application of makeup and technique that could be done I think that could be especially you know older women because a lot of it out there is very young it's all you know sort of maybe 15 to 25 basically maybe a little bit older maybe a little bit younger um but then there's there are a lot of people who are not 15 or 21, you know. They're 35, they're 40, they're 50, they're 60. There's not much out there for anybody who's older. And you never want to fall into that trap, I think, of... It's so tempting to be at 50 wearing the makeup you put on at 25 or 21 or, you know, and it's dating. Mm-hmm. You, do you know what I mean? I mean, you, you've got to... But then I think, and I remember this, having many conversations with people, and they'd say, well, I don't know what else to do. Which I t- yeah. absolutely understand. Because you move suddenly into another age group. I suppose it's 10-year gaps. Because it's been my experience as well. I mean, I'm not saying it's just others. And you think, well, then what worked for me? at 30 yeah, it doesn't work at 45 or 55 and I, I genuinely think there are a lot of people like they d- d- do what they do because they don't know what to do next 
And I think a lot of the formulations that aren't great for, especially like eyeshadow, aren't great if you've got wrinkles, you know? Yeah, they're like, too sparkly. Yeah, they're too sparkly. They fall they into pick, they, they pick up on all the lines. Mm-hmm. Crepey. I hadn't really thought of it, but there should be more older women on like you know youtube or you know doing makeup or you know makeup artists working with older women because all the ones i have ever watched yeah are definitely young girls who i don't even relate to you know because they're just but they're such big consumers as well because i know when i was 21 i was experimenting and changing and copying (laughs) you know putting on the tweedy eyes or Look, trying to look like Jean Shrimpton and ironing my hair. So you're constantly, constantly evolving the way you look. And of course, you want to be contemporary. You want to be part of your peer group. You want to look like your friends and all of that. So you're using a lot of makeup and, or not, depending on what your style is, and changing. And it is a, in that context, it, you know, it's a huge market, of course. And having been in that side of it, I can understand it. I think older women, you know, or not older, I mean, just as you get older, you tend to have different needs. You're not going to be changing your makeup every week yeah. or every month or because your latest icon is doing so-and-so or you're perhaps not so fashion, in quotes, orientated as you are when you're very young. And also, I think when you're young, let's face it, that when you're really young and you haven't got any lines or wrinkles or anything like that, you can basically get away with anything what can't you put on when you look that good without anything even if you don't think you do you can get away with it but I think when you reach maybe in your mid-40s you can't quite get away with the things you you did you don't experiment as much I used to wear a lot of eye makeup I mean a lot because I could because I was young and I didn't have bags under my eyes or any of those so of course I did but then it got to a certain stage in life and I just toned the whole thing down because it just didn't work I knew it didn't look good I knew how to do it yeah but when I put it on it didn't work so then I just dropped it now I wear minimal everything as you can see so it's the changing if you know what to do then you know what to drop and you know how to adapt etc etc but my experience has been that a lot of people just don't know where to go next what has always appealed to me about makeup is how it like lifts your energy, changes your mood. And I'm sure working with women, you must have... Totally. You can really, really... I, I have done work in my time with people who have had problems. Um, you know, with I worked a lot with... Um, <clears throat> for a period of time, I set up... I had a beauty school and I set up a program to work with blind women. Oh, wow. To teach them how to put their makeup on although they couldn't see and the lift even without being able to see themselves oh yeah they could they they knew they felt some of them had some of them had had sight before Mm. so they were aware when I described uh, and the team I worked with obviously what it was and they could they could feel it and also um they could tell from reactions people were straightforward with them friends you know family sisters and close friends and whatever what it looked like huge confidence get uh, builder uh, one of the few times i ever had a slight contretemps with somebody was at a talk i was giving this talk with other people who were involved in the creative industries and this girl who was young and very pretty 
didn't wear a scrap of makeup. She had perfect skin, beautiful hair, the whole thing. And quite frankly, if I would, was her, I wouldn't have worn any makeup either. And she really let rip into everybody about how they shouldn't bother with their hair and they shouldn't be, it was, you know, a tyranny that people had to wear makeup and, the, you know, the whole nine mm-hmm. yards. And we were all kind of, well, okay, you know. We did take her up on it and say, but you don't have a need. You know, you feel, you look like that. And you're very lucky, and yeah, you, you you look great. But what if, and explain to them, not everybody feels as confident as you do, because they've got scars, they've got acne scars, or they've got terrible hair, or, you know, they've had dental work, or they've been ill, and they've had chemotherapy, or, you know, God only knows what, what else. But, I mean, she did think about it, I have to say. But she was very adamant about... It was, you know, we shouldn't be encouraging people and people should just be natural and they didn't have to do this and they didn't have to do that. And I thought, well, everybody's relating to you. You you look pretty much perfect. I didn't say that to her, but she did. She looked great. Lucky girl. But not ever... And it is a visual world we live in. And people do relate to you when you... And you feel better if you look healthy, if you've got a bit of colour in your cheeks and your skin looks good. And I'm not talking about the whole nine yards with... A lot of makeup on and the whole sort of Kim Kardashian look. You know, if you've had a flu or something and you've had to stay in bed and you feel really grotty, you get up, you have a bath, you wash your hair, you blow dry it and you put a bit of lip gloss on or concealer on and you suddenly feel a million times. Mm-hmm. You may not be actually much better, but you feel so much better. And so I'm, yes, of course, people should wear makeup if they want to. And I think it's a bit arrogant to say don't do it. And we should all just be natural and live with the way we look. You've got to live with the way the way you look. But I mean, yeah, it does give. I've seen the confidence it gives people, and it's a real cheap, easy fix, really, isn't it? You know, to make somebody feel better. And you can wash it off if you feel you want to, and it makes you feel good. Why not? That's definitely been it. my that interaction with people. Just seeing them have someone else do their makeup for the first time or something. You know, where it's properly done, and they're like totally a different person because they've they never are. they've never known that they could look like that you know yeah. and it's not that you should relate to people only because they're you know I mean, it depends on our culture that we live in um what one person thinks is beautiful yeah. and another person actually just simply does not think beautiful but anyway given that we look at through our western eyes we are affected by the way people look i mean you see people relate to others as we all do and um, we tend to assess this not in a judgmental way I don't think it's just that we kind of get an instant impression and we assess people very much then we get to know them and perhaps we don't pay so much attention to the way they look and we tend to ignore the way they look in a way now I've made somebody up you know in quotes a makeover you know there's things they say make somebody over meaning they do the whole lot from top to toe and it's incredible if they like it. Mm-hmm. I have seen a couple of times, you know, people do these things and the person doesn't like what they see. Well, that's, you know, actually, to be honest, I think you've got to make sure that never happens by talking to them, making sure that you're not doing something that's all to do with you and not to do with them. Mm-hmm. But mostly they absolutely love it. What in your life are you most proud of? Just really getting anywhere. I think I've been very lucky, actually. Staying well healthy so far and uh, just having the energy to, and, and really getting through a very varied career with 
a lot of help from a lot of great people. I'm, it's not proud of, I think I'm just, I feel very grateful for that. Because as I said, I didn't start out with a plan. So I clearly didn't do it on my own. Yeah, I think most people I've, you know, I've interviewed quite a few people over the years and most people don't have a plan. Or if they think they have a plan, it never goes to exactly the way you it think never it goes will. to plan. Yeah, that, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, it's sort of why I decided to start doing the podcast because I was kept talking to my business partner's son who's now 18. But, you know, like him and his, having these conversations with these kids who really think they have to have it figured out. And I kept being like, it's not actually like that. You, it's, you, don't, you don't need to have it all figured out. And I've had that conversation with sort of a lot let of them know that under 21-year-olds. And something has happened where they don't have the security to feel. They really need to know that it's all mapped out. And they worry. It's a real fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a huge block. I had this conversation with a friend of mine's kids who were actually in their late teens, early 20s. And I said, well, if you f- what's going to happen to you yeah. if a bit of the plan fails? I mean, nothing, actually. Pick yourself up. I said, it'll be fine. You won't starve. You, you'll do something else, you know. So I think there's a lot of fear in it. Somehow, if it just doesn't work out, their lives will crumble and they're a failure. It's not true. No, it's not true. It's just, you know, and I know I've done a million things in my life already. And so I wanted to start having these conversations with people who've had very long and very successful careers, but their careers have possibly gone in a million directions. And even though you wanted to be a makeup artist and became a makeup artist, you sort of, you sort of went various ways and it's also branched out into other things. Like I think there's no way we can expect these things. Yeah, you see, if you think you can plan it all, you close yourself down to opportunities that might come your way and then you don't see the gap and then you're too afraid to take a, a tributary road because you don't know where it's going to mm-hmm. go. And that really shuts your world down so much, especially in anything creative. You know, you, ca- you, you really can't plan. You've, you've got to be able to do it. I mean, I was figured... If, a road I went down actually really wasn't going to work out at all. I mean, I was just presumed it was going to be all right somehow. I, you know, I, I knew there was, would always be something else I could do. And I remember a, a friend of mine, a wonderful, wonderful photographer, said to me, once we were talking about that very thing, it must have been at least like 25 years ago, and we were talking about that, and he said, oh, you know, one day maybe you'll want my pictures. I mean, they did, but that wasn't the point. And he said, oh, well, I suppose. He said, well, I've still got a pair of hands. And I totally understood what he was saying. I'll just do something else. I think you've really got to remain open and not not be afraid. I think lack of fear is really a big, big, big thing. And I, I can hear that people get really worried in case it doesn't work out. Not everything works out. I mean, yeah. I've had some real disasters, you know. But, you know. You end up crying, but what? I mean, what can you do? You've got to dust yourself off. Yeah. I mean, your clothing thing. I mean, the things you just start and they just don't. Not everything works out. No, totally. But what do you do? Never try anything, in case. And I think if you're lucky enough to have a child, I mean, some people so, you know, they don't actually. They're in a position where they don't have the opportunity to take a chance on anything they're interested in because they simply cannot do it 
their social circumstances mm-hmm. usually don't, or they've got physical circumstances. They would love to, but you know, they just can't. So I think if you can, you shouldn't be afraid. And don't be afraid of the hard work. I think a lot of it is if you really don't like the job that you do. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I are lucky, and a lot of people we know are very lucky because they're doing things they might have taken the chance and might have made the career or job or whatever happen because that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But not everybody gets you know, that opportunity. And I think you can take more of a chance when actually what you're doing is your passion. Definitely. You know, as somebody said to me, I get, actually get paid for doing something or make my hobby. I can sort of see why if it's not your passion you'd be very worried about the future the future and the, and the failure but I think even then it's good to take a chance not in a foolhardy way I mean that's just you know crazy but I my peer group didn't exactly fall into it but things have come their way because they've just had to do it especially people in the film business you know they started out I mean literally as runners and tea fetchers and God only knows. And also in the fashion business. Mm-hmm. You know, and hairdressing, you know, there was sort of sweeping the floor or, I don't know, just a, a gopher, you know, go for this, go for that. So I think you've got to be prepared to do all of that because you don't, you don't, nobody starts at the top of the tree. You've definitely put yourself out on a limb when you made your little book and went around to all the magazines, you know. It's no, no way of knowing what would have happened, you know. I don't know. Didn't think about it sometimes you can have ambition but no expectations does that make sense yeah and that's probably the better way to be you have a lot of ambition but you're just going to do it but you don't really know what's going to happen so there are no expe- there are no expectations there but you're going to do it because you can see that, because you want to you know and you give it your all I think maybe if you just expect it all to happen and then it doesn't but if you don't know what could happen, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen with your clothing range. Yeah. You know, it could be, or maybe, but you've taken a fly, you've taken a chance, it could be hugely successful, or trundle along nicely, or you could catch a cold, and I know you could lose a lot of money, I know what the fashion business is like, but you wouldn't not do it. Would yeah. You? You're in there now, mm-hmm. for a penny and for a pound. Thank you so much, this was so oh, it's wonderful. It's been so great talking to you, so yeah. nice to meet the person I follow on Instagram. <laughs> Yeah, it's been so lovely to talk to you and hear all your stories and everything. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Barbara Daly. Please head to our website to see images from throughout her career, some TV makeover clips from the 1980s, as well as a short article. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with photographers, artists, and designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.